One of my favorite movies is uh, it's about a, a Notre Dame football player named Rudy. Have I ever seen that before? Real, real short guy. He's about my height, actually, and about about my weight. After two years of trying, he finally got accepted to Notre Dame. He just had a dream of playing football there, and after a lot of hard work, he made it on the practice squad. And uh, his job on the practice squad was to run the opposing team's plays in order to get the first team ready for the game on Saturday. Now, like I said, imagine somebody about my height and my weight, maybe a little bit skinnier than me, lining up on the line against somebody like Michael Dykes. Now, what would happen here, I'm on defense, he's on offense, all right? What's going to happen when the ball is snapped? He is going to cream me, right? I'm going to get pancaked. Is that what you call it, Mike? Because he played for UNC. I didn't play high school football, much less college football. Now, if we the ball is snapped, I'm going to get leveled, right? He's going to knock my cleats off. Well, this is, if you watch the movie, this guy, he has so much heart, so much determination to play football for Notre Dame. He said, I'll play the practice squad. I'll do what it takes. And every play, it shows him getting smashed. He gets up, gets smashed again, gets up, gets smashed again. And one time, one of the players said, hey, man, why don't you lighten up out there? You know, it's just practice, and you're, you're going to get yourself killed. And it's just practice anyway. And Rudy tells the first stringer, he says, hey, it's my job to get you guys ready for Saturday. And so I'm not going to lighten up. It's what I'm called to do, and I'm going to do my job for the good of this team. You know, competition can be a good thing. It can push people to be better. However, competition can also bring out the worst in people sometimes. You know, you see it or you hear the stories even about like an inner squad scrimmage, uh, like on uh, the Michael Jordan movie. You know, they talk about how he was competitive all the time. And even on a scrimmage in between teammates, sometimes you'll see them getting into fights and things, competition gets heated up. And a coach sometimes will have to step in and be like, hey, guys, cut it out. You know, we're all on the same team here. So stop fighting. And I think that illustration is really, really helpful for us as Christians. Because fighting and disagreements and squabbles, they're nothing new. You know, it's part of human nature. But as followers of Christ, we have to remember the ultimate goal is that we want to see God glorified. The glory of God, like I said earlier, that's the heart and the soul of our church and each one of our lives as Christians. And the message today can be summarized into one simple statement is that God is glorified in our lives as we decrease and as Jesus increases. God is most glorified in our lives as we decrease and as Jesus increases. And the main character in our story today is John the Witness. Other places and other people call him John the Baptist. But like I said, like he's known as John the Witness kind of in the Apostle John. He began, you know, the Apostle John began this story of Jesus' life with after the introduction talking about you know John the witness and how he was a testimony of Jesus Christ and how he came onto the scene with a message of repentance telling people to prepare for the coming Messiah baptizing people who wanted to make an outward profession of faith and then he was the one who made the announcement that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and some of Jesus's first followers were actually first followers of John they were with John, and then John pointed that out, that he's the Lamb of God, and so they left John and they followed Jesus. And John was okay with this, uh, but I guess some of his followers weren't okay with that, which we'll get to in a second. 
Because not all of John's followers left John to go to Jesus. And John didn't stop his ministry when Jesus' ministry started. So there was some overlap there between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. But we do see, especially in, the, in this book, uh, the book of John here, we do see that John's ministry fades away, especially here in, in the end of chapter 3. This is kind of like, it's funny because the Apostle John, the Gospel of John, it starts with all about John the Baptist, right? John the Witness. And then like he's like so heavy in the first three chapters, and then we don't hear from him. This is it. So he like fades away here, and uh, we don't really, he's referenced like twice after this, but this is it. This is the last we're going to talk about John the Witness. And the central theme of this passage is this one statement that he is known for. It's like his final curtain call. He has this one life statement, this one big verse that, or at least that's ever, like today, we think of this as like, a saying that maybe we should hold on to in our own lives, and which is in verse 30. But before we get there, let's look at where the reading started in verse 22. Jesus and his disciples, they had done some traveling, some traveling ministry, and they go to the countryside where John and his disciples are. So you got, you know, John, he's there. He's doing his thing, baptizing, right? And then obviously his followers are still with him. Then you got Jesus show up and his followers. And it's like, okay, what's going to happen now, right? It's going to be like this, these two rival gangs showing up on the same block. Is it going to be a turf war here, you know? Is it going to be like the Bloods versus the Crips or something like that, you know? Is it going to be the Hatfields and McCoys? Is there going to be a big clash that takes place? Because they are in the same spot doing the same ministry, kind of. And it's because it says here that water was plentiful. It just happened to be that this was a good spot. And so many people were, like, wanting to get baptized. So many people were like turning from their sin and they wanted to do this outward show of inward change. They wanted to prepare for the kingdom of God's arrival. So, so many people were coming to get baptized that they all ended up in the same area just for practical reasons that there was water there. And John's disciples, they it says that they got into a discussion with a Jew or the Jewish leaders about the nature of purification. So the Jewish leaders, they probably didn't recognize that John and Jesus, that like, what, what are they doing? Okay, this isn't ceremonial washing. This is dunking. This is something different. But what's the relationship between the old and this new thing that they're doing? And that's probably how the discussion got started. It's some of the same discussions we've had as Christians too. And some of the discussions that they might have been asking are some of the same questions that maybe you've asked as well too or you've talked about. Like, what is baptism? Like, why was John doing it? Is it important? Is it necessary for salvation? How important is it? Like they were having this discussion about the nature of baptism in relation to salvation. And then they might have started to ask other questions like, okay, why is like Jesus' disciples, is it Jesus or is it his disciples? Is that baptism different than John's baptism? And if it is, then which one is better? All of these questions and these emotions began to bubble to the surface and there's confusion because look at verse 26. It says that uh, they, as in John's disciples, after this discussion with the Jews, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And it almost sounds like there's a little bit of complaining going on here. I mean, first of all, I, if I was John, I'd be like, look, guys, he has a name, okay? 
Not be like, oh, that guy over there, you know, look what he's doing here. The guy across the Jordan, you remember that you talked about? And John's probably like, uh, his name is Jesus, okay? First of all, I had talked about him. And secondly, he's allowed to baptize too, okay? It's not like we're the only people just because I have the nickname of the Baptist. It doesn't mean that I'm the only one who can baptize. So just chill out a little bit, he tells his followers. And, and thirdly, look at how exaggeration they are. They're like, all are going to him. I mean, if everyone had gone to Jesus, then who are they, right? They're John's disciples. If I was John, I would be like, look, guys, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, stop exaggerating. Because not everybody has gone to them. So they're all worked up. They're all emotional. They, they, they want to know what's going on. Look at what's happening here. I don't get it, you know? But I can totally get where John's disciples are coming from because they have a sense of loyalty to their teacher. I mean, in their minds, John, he is the superior leader. These are the people that didn't leave John to go to Jesus. And so they probably think John's a better teacher than this Jesus anyway from Nazareth. I mean, can anything good come from there, right? (laughs) And then they're probably thinking, Jesus, he owes everything to John anyway. John's the one who got Jesus his start. And look at him. He's stealing John's followers. People from our group are going to his group. And maybe there's a feeling of distress in John's followers. They're worried about John's reputation and his future. And maybe they're a little annoyed that people have left. And maybe they're disappointed in John. Maybe they're worried that like, oh man, we hitched our wagon to this guy. Now he's, he's a falling star, right? Or maybe they're filled with envy that, that Jesus is getting more attention. At any rate, what we see here is that John is kind of losing popularity and momentum to someone else. You know, this is one of those tried and true tactics that the devil uses. He convinces us to criticize others who are faithfully doing God's work. And we see the crowds going someplace else, and we might get jealous. And envy and division were a massive problem back then, even in the first church, in the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no division among you, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there's rivalry among you. What I am saying is this, that one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? And so you see this in the very first church, these Christians, they were saying, well, like, I follow the teachings of Paul. Well, I follow the teachings of Peter. And some people are like, well, I follow the teachings of Jesus. You know, and he's like, there's only one Jesus, people, right? So why are you all divided? If you're all following Christ, it doesn't really matter who your primary teacher is. Jesus should be the focus, not these earthly leaders. In fact, Paul had a great attitude in Philippians. He said, some people are preaching Christ from envy and selfish ambition but he said i don't really care why people are preaching let it be for those sinful reasons paul said as long as christ is preached i'm happy as long as you're preaching accurately then that's fine with me you know the point is is that you don't follow earthly teachers primarily you learn from earthly teachers you learn about jesus we follow jesus first and first of all so john's followers might have thought he was going to get upset or something and they, they really, I bet they did not expect his reaction. 
Because I'm sure they were really surprised when John said, oh, people are going to Jesus. That's great news. <laughs> and John explains why in verse 27 through 30. And this is what I might call his philosophy of ministry here. And the first point is in verse 27. It's John's perspective on ministry. He understands that God is sovereign. Everything good that happens to John is a result of God's grace in his life. So as people flocked to him, as the crowds gathered and they listened to him preach, it would have been natural for him to say like, oh man, I've, I've got it all together. I've figured out the, the secret key, right? The secret formula. Now everybody knows like, I know what I'm doing. I've got the crowds. I've got the adulation from so many people. He could have thought, oh, I'm really good at this. But he didn't do that. He understood that the divine origin of his success. He said no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So we can do nothing good or successful apart from the kindness of God. God brought every single person out to John to listen to him. It wasn't some slick marketing scheme. God brought the people to John to be baptized. God is the one who did the work in those people's lives. Because every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from our Father of lights. Scripture says every good gift comes from God whether it's money or health or physical abilities or any kind of success any kind of success in in ministry or in your life in vocation in your world it doesn't matter John knows that you must recognize that every gift that we have comes from the Lord and so John immediately says hey they're not my people they're God's people and John reminds his listeners again here of his the pattern of his ministry. In verse 28, he said, I've been saying this from the beginning. I am not the Christ. My job, my vocation, my calling is to point people to Christ. But I'm not him. So John, he was very clear about this from the very beginning. The only thing that mattered to John was that people knew who Jesus was. And the reason God so powerfully used John the Baptist is because he is the one that he recognized that he was nothing compared to Jesus. Martin Luther, the reformer, once said, God created the world out of nothing. When I realize that I am nothing, perhaps God can create something out of me too. Or as one writer put it, God doesn't need me to accomplish his plan. He can do it without my help, supervision, or without my permission. To illustrate his point and, and why he just his whole, whole heart of ministry, his pleasure in ministry, John tells a little story in verse 29. He compares Jesus to a bridegroom and himself to the groom's friend, or what we would call the best man at the wedding. So the best man in this time period, in this region, his role was to prepare for the wedding festivities. Nowadays you would have like a wedding planner, and the best man, he just like, what, does a toast, right? And messes up the car, maybe does something fun with the, the guy the night before. Well, back in their day, the best man did everything. He was the wedding planner. He did everything, got everything ready, got, you know, got everything in order, and his big job was to like make sure either the bride was going to get to the location right there or the groom was going to get to the location where the bride was. Like he's the one to make sure the wedding went smoothly. And the, once the wedding started, the best man's job was done. He could like stand up or he could be in a place and be like, "Okay, like this is it. Like everything is ready, everything is, is set up now." Can you imagine a best man getting angry if the bride doesn't show up? That's, that's ridiculous, right? In fact, I saw a news story this week 
this is a true story, about after the wedding, they had the meal, and there was a, the best man's toast. Well, he, like, professed his love for the bride and then, like, stole the bride away from the groom. Yeah, it was like, I couldn't believe it. And this is why, this is so ridiculous. He should not be called the best man at all, right? So ridiculous, it's like, that it made the news. It made the news. That's how ludicrous it is. That's how crazy it is. This is why John used the story, the same story. John says, hey, I am the best man. Jesus is the groom. Jesus has arrived for his bride. So I'm not angry. I'm excited. And this is what I've been working for. This is what I've been praying for. This is what I've been, this is my job is done. And now I, I greatly rejoice that the voice of the bridegroom has arrived. I don't think John's choice of illustration here either was random. Throughout the New Testament, we see the same imagery applied to Jesus and the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul picked up on this when he wrote to the Corinthians, I promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. So all throughout Scripture, we see the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom. We see that in the Old Testament too. A lot of times, God, Lord, Yahweh, used that illustration saying like, you are my bride. And, and then Jesus' arrival, that's like the voice of the bridegroom. Not necessarily, it's like the beginning of his arrival. He's not necessarily, the kingdom of God is not fully consummated yet. It's not completely established, but the voice of the bridegroom, his nearness is there. And one day there's going to be a great marriage ceremony. And it's funny, the writer of John here, he writes also in the book of Revelation, at the end of time his vision was this, in Revelation 19, let us be glad Rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. And so one day there's going to be this wonderful marriage ceremony where right, like right now John says, I hear the voice of the bridegroom and I'm excited. And now we're still in this excitement time period of the last days when one day Jesus is going to come back again for his bride, the church. So John the witness, he isn't concerned about his popularity. He's rejoicing that the time has arrived. And his statement, his life verse, his one word purpose statement for us to adopt is in verse 30. He says, my joy is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Because John's purpose wasn't to gain fame or popularity or recognition. His goal was to bring glory to Jesus. And he lived so that Jesus' name would increase. So we have to ask ourselves that question, how can we make the fame of Jesus increase in our own life or in our own church? It starts with asking that question, first of all, how do I decrease? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first of all, it starts let's start by adopting his philosophy of ministry, recognizing that every gift that you have comes from above. It comes from God. So you might have natural ability and you might also add hard work to your natural ability, but your ability to work hard is also a gift from God. So watch out about patting yourselves on the back or tooting your own horn too quickly. We have to let God get the glory and deflect any recognition away from ourselves to Him. And secondly, we place our joy in the work of God and what He is doing and not in our own work. So be happy when God is doing something. Rejoice when God is doing something in the lives of others. 
In other words, like let's say you're praying for somebody to to come to know the Lord. You're praying for somebody to become a Christian. And maybe it's your own family member. And maybe you've shared with this person before. And you're praying for them, praying for them, praying for them. And then all of a sudden, somebody else, like maybe even a random person, shares the gospel with them and they get saved. Are you disappointed? Like, oh, I've been telling you this, you know? Or are you excited? Like, I don't really care how God saves this person, whether it's me, which I'm willing, or whether it's somebody else. That's great. Let's celebrate with that. Or how about this? Let's say you're praying for revival to break out and it breaks out in somebody else's church. Are we going to be happy with that? May we be a church that rejoices that that would happen. May we be a church that prays that God would fill up all the other churches in the area so that we could just receive the overflow. Because I actually counted and uh, there's plenty of empty chairs and even if every chair was full in every church, there would still be so many people that there wouldn't be room for it. So let's pray for revival to break out all over the city, not just in our church. May God use many, many other churches as well. So let's make that our prayer as well. And then John, he goes on here, and he uses these next five verses. And again, if you look at the footnote, it's like we talked about this before. Where does John the witness quit talking, and when does John the apostle pick up with his commentary? And again, let me just say, it doesn't really matter because it's the Word of God, and the meaning is still there, and it's still really, really helpful. But different versions of the Bible will say, it, it, there's no quotation marks in the original, <laughs> and, and nobody spoke in red letters, right? So we don't know for sure. But you look here, he, he gives three reasons. I think it is John, the witness, just as a side note. But he gives three reasons here why we should heed his testimony, John, the witness's testimony. And the first of all, in verse 31, is the supremacy of Christ. It says, he who comes from above is above all. He who, he, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So he says the same thing there at the beginning and the end of the verse. But basically saying the same thing is that Jesus is not from here. Jesus is from heaven. Jesus might have been born as a human being in a stable in Bethlehem, but he existed before he existed. I mean, before he was born. Because he's eternal. He's the eternal son of God. Well, John the Baptist says, I, am, I was born of earth. I'm not from eternity. I have an earthly father and an earthly mother. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so the difference is that we belong to earth. We have a normal, ordinary human being, John said. But Jesus is from above. He is from heaven. So he is above all. That means he's also supreme. Nothing and no one is greater than Jesus. So he has authority over all things. Everything has been put under his rule and his dominion. And this is an important statement because people in Jesus' day and people today, they will say, well, Jesus is a good teacher, but I'm not ready to accept him as Lord of all. Well, as supreme being, Jesus cannot be a partial Lord of your life. If he is Lord at all, then he is Lord of all. And Jesus, being from heaven, is Lord of all. And secondly, the testimony of Christ in the next couple of verses here, in verses 32 and 33, they appear contradictory. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to the one, uh, to this, that God is true. It almost sounds like it's contradictory. We've seen this earlier in John where he says, like, a lot of people are going to reject him, and just the people that you think 
like the Jewish people were supposed to receive the Messiah and not all of them did and then other people did. Well, many people did reject Jesus. He's very clear uh, about Jesus was about who he is and why he came. Jesus is very clear that he was truly God in the flesh. He was the son of man that Daniel predicted would come. And many people did reject him. Many people did not think he was truly God in the flesh. And, and, but there was a small minority of people who received his testimony. And so, yeah, there were some who received this. And it says in verse 33 that their confidence is when what God says that it is true. It, it literally, um, in verse 33, it says that they set his seal. Or as the, uh, I think it's the Christian Standard Bible, it says they make their mark. It means the same thing. That those who receive the testimony set their seal or they make their mark on the truth of God's word. To set a seal, you, you probably have seen this in the movies or anything. If you had a, a scroll that was rolled up or an envelope that was sealed, you would put hot wax wherever it met and then you would take your seal, your mark, and you would make your mark in the hot wax so that if the person received it on the other end saw your mark, they would know that it was from you and that nobody messed with it. Well, when a person believes the testimony of Jesus, he says that through Jesus I have heard God and I testify that this message is authentic. It's not a forgery. And I believe the words of Jesus are the words of God. So that's like you saying, I, I agree with this. You agreeing with it doesn't make it true. You're just agreeing with the truth of God's word. And the opposite is also true. To reject the testimony of Jesus is to reject God, reject God himself. So if you reject Jesus, you are calling the God of the universe a fraud. Jesus did not come to deliver his own message either, but to speak the words of God, as it says in verse 34. Jesus came kind of like one of the Old Testament prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament received the Holy Spirit for a short amount of time to speak God's word or for a certain purpose. But it says that Jesus received the full measure of the Holy Spirit. If you remember at his baptism, John said, I saw the Spirit rest on him. Not just come and leave, but come and rest on him and remain on him. So that we know that he is from the Father in heaven. We know that he is full of the Holy Spirit all the time. We know that Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. And then the final reason given here is the authority of Christ. God has given all things into his hand, verse 35 says. So Jesus has authority over life and death, over forgiveness and punishment, over salvation and condemnation. Jesus has the power and authority to give eternal life, but only he is the one who does it to those who believe in him. And notice the word believe in verse 36 is, is not in contrast to does not believe, but with those who do not obey. Or as the CSB says, those who reject the Son which is pretty interesting that, it, that you see that comparison. Because an element in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is accepting his word and obeying. You can't separate obedience from belief. The word that John uses all the time is the word believe. And that word in the Greek is, is an action verb. It's not just something, okay, it's just not just knowledge, assent, understanding. It's like, I, I agree with what you say. There was always an action to the word belief. And so to believe, you must obey what Jesus has said, what he's commanded. And what we believe and how we live our lives, they're intertwined. So it's like belief and obedience, they go hand in hand. And the New Testament teaches that if you don't turn from your sin and obey Jesus, then you haven't put your faith in him. 
If you're walking in disobedience and saying that I am a Christian and I believe Jesus, your life doesn't match up with what you're saying. And you, you don't believe. So true belief in Jesus is always accomplished, is always is accompanied by obedience to Him. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we're putting ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus. So you can't accept half of Jesus' salvation. You can't say, I'd like you, Jesus, to rescue me from death, but I don't, I don't want to follow you. It's a package deal. You receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or he says, the wrath of God remains on you. And then we talked about that before, how we are by nature objects of wrath. The wrath of God is on us because we are by nature rebels. But when we believe the word of the Lord, when we receive Jesus and his salvation and put our faith in him, and again, like I said, it's an action verb, well, then we have no longer the wrath of God does not remain on us, but now we receive the righteousness of Christ is our own. And faith follows, and faith always bears fruit. And finally, the gift of God, like it says here in verse 36, is that we have eternal life in the Son. Not just forever life in heaven, but abundant life right here on earth. Abundant life doesn't come from making much of ourselves. Abundant life doesn't come from making yourself look better or look bigger or look more righteous. Our physical life should not be lived to make ourselves increase. I heard someone say one time that if you want to ensure that your life story is a tragedy, then make yourself the hero of your story. Make yourself the hero of your story and your life will be a tragedy. Make Jesus Christ the hero of your story and God is glorified. And so may we pray the words of John the Witness today that may we decrease and may Jesus increase for the glory of God.